So, we got some rave reviews for Poirot of the Apes. Got any more Belgium goodness? Sure, how about The Mysterious Case of the Green Soilin? Hit me. Not, not literally, though, just figuratively. Hastings, my friend, I think you should put the sound of the Soilin Green down. You see, Hastings, my little grey cells, they tell me the Soilin Green, it is the people. Okay, what else you got? Well, I haven't got an Agatha Christie-style title for this one, but it's basically Blade Runner. Good enough. I've seen things, Hastings, that you would not believe. Poisonings by the little old ladies on the River Nile. I've seen vials of cyanide shattered in the fireplaces of the manor. All these moment tastings, they will not be lost to Poirot. He has a mind like a trap. Mm, not quite as good. One more? Mon ami, are you talking to me? Hastings, are you talking to me? Bon Dieu, are you talking to me? Then who else are you talking to? Hastings, I ask again. Are you talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here, Hastings. Who do you think you're talking to? Oh, Inspector Japp of the Scotland Yard on the telephone? I see Hastings. The little clay cells, they let Poirot down. Well, we've plumbed the depths here. Have we? Have we? For the sake of what's left of our audience, I certainly hope so. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison in Auckland, New Zealand, and in Zhuhai, China, its Associate Professor of Philosophy and passionate advocate for the abolition of feet, the measurement and the body part, Dr. M. Dentith. Indeed, so, so sure am I about the unnecessity unnecessary nature that's a that's a much better way of putting it so sure am i about the unnecessary nature of feet that i no longer have any feet of my own and indeed am pruning the feet of others i know so watch out next time you see me it's going to be snippy snip snip with the share share shares yep no i personally had my feet replaced with with good 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 honest meters many years ago now how are you feeling first of all given your your convalescence last week? Uh, I well, so I'm better from the the vaccination post hot jab thing. I seem to have actually. I'm obviously not better. I've lost the ability no, to actually well, yes. to, to form sentences. I've also hurt a hamstring, which means it both hurts to stand up and to sit down, which is actually quite difficult when you want to record a podcast. Mm, mm. Right, well, so I know I say this every time, but maybe this episode had better, maybe we actually have, have motivation to make this episode a short one then uh, for, for your own physical well-being. Indeed, I mean, this is going uh, so, to be a classic, a classic ep- episode that whenever you ask for my comments, I'll go, nothing to say here, move along. Move Indeed, along, yes. I'm going to say, there's nothing more to say here, move along. Welcome. To Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. Right, so it is a a Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre episode, but a slightly different one. We're looking at, I believe for the first time, a paper from Jenna Husting and Martin Orr. Indeed, we're Um, moving outside of philosophy into sociology and also moving back in time. So we're changing discipline and temporal period things have got very confused and there's a reason why they've got confused and it'll 
eventually make a kind of sense, but never be acknowledged in the actual episodes themselves. So, you know, it no, gets a bit no. meta at this point. Yes. No, so the paper we're looking at is called Dangerous Machinery, Conspiracy Theorist as a Transpersonal Strategy of Exclusion. And last time we had a, a article title that rhymed, which I believe I said I'm 1,000% in favour of. Uh, if, if that's the case, I'm 2,000% in favour uh, in favor of article titles that sound like a sort of early period Nine Inch Nails album. Well, indeed, it's, e- it's uh, even Dan- published in a journal that sounds like a Nine Inch Nails album. Symbolic interaction. Hmm, maybe something bit bit new wave eighties. I'm not sure. Oh, but or, yes, definitely. Possibly even a Tool album. I can imagine a Tool album being called Symbolic Interaction Three. Hmm. Anyway, now. Jenner and Martin are, are names familiar to anyone who's been listening to this show for a while. We've you, you've interviewed them multiple times, um, but since this, this is the first time, I believe we're actually looking at any of their work. Can you give us a quick intro to the pair of them and and what they do? No, we'll be moving straight along. Actually, that's that's not fair. So Martin Jenner are sociologists at Boise State University, which is an unusually named university because Boise is not a state. Idaho is a state. Boise is located in Idaho, and yet somehow the university is not called Boise Idaho State University or Idaho State University Boise. It's Boise State University, which now makes me think the university is indeed a tissue of lies, which is even more confusing because I've been to Boise State University, or at least I've been to an institution that claims to be Boise State University. Anyway, they're both sociologists. They published this paper back in 2007. I met Marty at the Conspiracy Theory Conference run by Joe Yusinski. I met Jenna when I went to Boise to see Marty and to give a talk. And they're both scholars of the highest class. And I'm not saying that for the sheer fact that I'm also co-writing two papers with them at the moment. And that, unfortunately, is as far as we got before the internet connection between the two of us just died completely. It had been a little bit patchy as we were recording the start of the episode. It dropped out a couple of times and then came back and then and then dropped out again almost instantly. So we decided that um, instead of wasting the entire evening wrestling with technology, we should just go away and do, do one of these, do one of those sort of Frankenstein-y episodes that we did from time to time back when M was in Romania. So what we're going to, what's going to happen now is that I'm going to go through the paper and uh, say what I thought of it, and M is going to interject at various points uh, with, with comments as and when they see fit, or maybe not at all, who knows? Um, and, and I assume uh, we'll be able to edit it together into something vaguely sensible. So here goes, basically. Uh, So yes, the paper, Dangerous Machinery, Conspiracy Theorist as a Transpersonal Strategy of Exclusion. Uh, It has an abstract, and the abstract reads as follows. In a culture of fear, we should expect the rise of new mechanisms of social control to deflect distrust, anxiety, and threat. Relying on the analysis of popular and academic texts, we examine one such mechanism, the label conspiracy theory, and explore how it works in public discourse to go meta by sidestepping the examination of evidence. 
Our findings suggest that authors use the conspiracy theory theorist label as 1. a routinized strategy of exclusion, 2. a reframing mechanism that deflects questions or concerns about power, corruption and motive, and 3. an attack upon the personhood and competence of the questioner. This label becomes dangerous machinery at the transpersonal levels of media and academic discourse, symbolically stripping the claimant of the status of reasonable interlocutor, often to avoid the need to account for one's own action or speech. We argue that this and similar mechanisms simultaneously control the flow of information and symbolically demobilize certain voices and issues in public discourse. And so in the intro, they, they sort of set out something that actually sounded quite uh, similar to the last paper we looked at, uh, must be about four weeks ago by now, um, the the truth gains and language claims, uh, where if you recall, they the authors of that paper talked about how the label of conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist kind of has operates by different rules. You call someone a conspiracy theorist and suddenly the, the usual rules of, of, of evidence or argumentation or what have you kind of go out the window and it gets treated as special. And so in this one, Jenner and Martin... Uh, kind of making a similar claim, and yet about 10 years uh, before that. Um, so in the intro, for instance, they sell an introduction section, they say, when I call you a conspiracy theorist, I can turn the tables on you. Instead of responding to a question, concern, or challenge, I twist the machinery of interaction so that you, not I, are now called to account. In fact, I've done even more. By labeling you, I strategically exclude you from the sphere where public debate, sorry, public speech, debate, and conflict occur. Um, so right from the start, they sort of seem to be identifying the fact that this label of conspiracy theory use, used, um, obviously, in the, in the pejorative sense that we used to, can sort of short-circuit any kind of discussion and immediately put the person you're accusing of being a conspiracy theorist on the back foot, as it were, which I think is a cricket term. I'm not sure if that translates overseas, but anyway. Um, so I guess before we start, th this is a sociology paper. And it's the first sociology paper I've ever read. I'm pretty sure. And I found it a little bit, um, a little bit. Uh, I, I guess harder, harder to read is kind of the word, and not 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 in that it's written in obscure or difficult language, but just sort of the, it, it operates differently to philosophy papers. Uh, for one thing, it's a lot more empirical, um, as we'll see. Um, having sort of made their made their claims at the start a large part of this paper is going to be basically a, a survey of of media and academic literature um, to sort of provide evidence for their claims but it does start off in the uh, first proper section which is called going meta frames as machinery of discourse um, setting things out a little bit so they do, do a bit of good old-fashioned defining of terms um, in, in particular the, the idea of a frame um, a frame being sort of the, the, the sort of thing a speaker would say in certain circumstances as opposed to anything the speaker may actually say. I think I'm getting that right. And so they talk about how the label of conspiracy theorist sort of shifts the frame because when you've been um, accused of being a conspiracy theorist, you're, you're no longer... It's, again, it's, it's no longer about what you're saying it becomes about what what you say 
in relation to that. We'll see a bit later on, though, they talk about the whole disclaimer strategy of, of, of saying, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but... Um, so it, it sort of, it, it, it kind of metaphorically pulls the rug out from under you. They say, uh, conspiracy theory or theorist is an apparatus that, when invoked, sets in motion a frame shift that exposes both the speaker's claims and the speaker's competence to attack. So again, it's not, it's not just arguing against what you say it's sort of it's it's almost um attacking your your right to say it or your your competence to be able to say it and so that that sort of sets up <clears throat> i think I, i'm i'm glossing over a lot here and i'll um probably be doing that a bit because again there's a lot of stuff that didn't quite resonate with me coming from a philosophy background so i've kind of skipped across to the things that that um did I keep, I keep wanting to say make sense to me, which is not to imply that the rest of the paper doesn't make sense. It's just makes uh, I, I don't I don't have the background to properly handle it. Um, but so that's the start of it. We get into the next section called situating the machinery, symbolic interaction, and the sociology of power and language. They start by saying power, language, and meaning construction are central to our work. Power is a notoriously slippery concept whether we take a Foucauldian or symbolic interactionist approach. But scholars across perspectives concur that we must approach power not as a what or a thing, but as a how, a set of processes or mechanisms. Um, Foucault, at least. I, I almost feel like I'm on um, familiar ground there, although I never really did a lot of Foucault. We haven't talked about it much in this particular podcast, but he's a name I know. Um, but so they say, talking in particular about American political culture, they say that recent work on the transpersonal level indicates that US public arenas are now characterised by anxiety and the constant spectre of danger, in addition to, or perhaps instead of, a sense of homogeneity. The idea being that in previous times, there was, and obviously I have no competence to be speaking about the national mood of the United States a decade or so before I was born, but basically the suggestion is that we went from an idea of sort of the homogeneity and the way you would attack something would be sort of to suggest it's it's not not properly American. And now that these days, especially in the sort of post nine eleven era, there's a the the, the undercurrent of of fear, um, which I think uh, is not is not a particularly outlandish claim if you just look at how much of um, sort of populist politics, especially your, your good old Trumpy stuff. Is all about identifying a boogeyman, identifying a threat, whether it's immigrants or terrorists or uh, critical race theory or what have you. Um, no, so moving on, they say, in such a culture, fear and threat become the means for media, politicians and corporations to sell commodities, buy votes and justify policies, reducing civil rights and promoting war. As a mythos of consensus had turned into a mythos of fear, we would expect to find new interactional mechanisms to shield authority and legitimacy from challenge or accountability in a society characterised by political, economic and cultural inequalities. Conspiracy theory, or theorist, is one such mechanism. The label functions symbolically, protecting certain decisions and people from question in areas of political, cultural and scholarly knowledge construction. Such devices are strategies of exclusion and are used across the political spectrum and for a variety of topics. In all these contexts, they can deflect attention from the claims at hand and shift discourse to the nature of the claimant, which again is, is a, uh, emphasizes, reinforces this, the, the, the case that they're trying to make here, that as soon as you call someone a conspiracy theorist, as soon as you call something a, the a conspiracy theory, you're, you're immediately undermining it. Uh, obviously, again, we're talking about the... Um, 
the 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 very pejorative uh, use, not the use that M and I uh, generally talk about. You're immediately challenging not just the the the, the content of the conspiracy theory, but the, the the character or the standing or the competence of the person who's putting it forward, sort of shifting shifting the attack even a further. Uh, step back, so you don't even need to con- criticise the actual content of what they're saying. They, you, you put them in a position where they sort of have to justify themselves before they can even begin justifying what they're talking about. Now, the next section is called caveat. I may be paranoid, but that doesn't mean. And um, they quick they, just as a um, another point before they get into the the main body of the paper, compare uh, talking about conspiracy theories to talking about paranoia and rumour. And I know we have seen talk of of rumour in the past um, coming up in some of our papers. So again, this is is sounding a little more familiar. But so in this section, they say that uh, they argue that the charge of conspiracy theory in public spheres discredits specific explanations for social and historical events, regardless of the quality or quantity of evidence. The charge tends to at least tacitly to to involve the belief that conspiracy theories constitute a general type of claim that can be dismissed as such. We do not deny that some claims characterised as as conspiracy theories are false, but conspiracy theories, like rumour and the categories overlap, are forms of collective problem-solving or meaning construction. Moreover, and more to our point, when the phrase becomes a means of delegitimising, trivialising or dismissing claims, it no longer matters whether they were in fact claims about conspiracy or simply demands that decisions of and uses of power be accounted for publicly. And this in this section, they again acknowledge, as we've seen in, in numerous other papers, we know that conspiracies do occur. And indeed, you know, as, as they point out, um, there is such a thing as criminal conspiracy. Like there are certain kinds of conspiracies that are recognized by the law. And so they say, so, so they're not talking about uh, whether or not conspiracies can be true or not, they say, our concern then is neither explanation of any particular historical event nor any general distinction between conspiracies and other forms of social causation. Rather, we analyse conspiracy theory as a meta-move that, true or false, breaches the narrow circle of truth and falsity involved in routine, unproblematic claims making. The nature of that work is the focus of this article. So, we start to get into the main part of, of the article, the method and data section. So here's here's where I started to get a little bit um a little bit a little bit what's what's going on here? It's, it gets all empirical. I, I I didn't know you were allowed to do that. But of course this is a completely discipline a completely different discipline. So so in the, the method and data section they set out how they plan to study the use of the terms conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist. They say that our goal was not to provide an exhaustive or definitive empirical analysis of all appearances of conspiracy theory, but to isolate and track its functions as one mechanism of discursive power in an age of fear and uncertainty. So they, they, they talk about exactly what, they, what, what, what they've been analysing um, to um, track how conspiracy theory is used. They are using LexisNexis, they say, we searched the New York Times to track the frequency of conspiracy theory and theorist from 1968 to 1995. As Table 1 shows, the phrase has been on the rise since the mid-1980s. They have a table, they have an actual graph in this paper. It's, it's, it's practically looks like science. I'm, I'm, I'm all at sea here. Um, and obviously being a podcast, I cannot show you this graph, but, but take it from me that it, it very clearly shows the term, uh, the terms conspiracy or conspiracy theorist, both in headlines or leads or in the full text of article. There's 
quite a quite a noticeable jump sort of around 1980 and then it continues to trend upwards uh, all the way to the early 2000s so they say we examined the labels conspiracy theorist and conspiracy theory as well as explicit articulations of the phrases semantics and they quickly discovered that the phrase, no matter the context, reframes or shifts the ground of the interaction. Uh, but it wasn't just um, news media usage of the term. Uh, they also looked at the more sort of academic usage of it. They say, to locate users of the phrase in the social science press, our second discursive arena, we relied on searches of the sociological abstracts, which I assume is a journal, for the terms conspiracy, conspiracy theorist or theorists, and conspiracy theory or theories. And so the next part, which forms the main body of the paper, I, I, I suddenly realise I'm talking quite quickly, I think possibly because I'm still in the mindset of how we wanted to get this episode over quickly to spear Emma's poor hamstring, but maybe I should be pausing slightly at the end of each section to give Emma a chance to interject. So maybe let's stick a pause in here in case there's anything in particular that Emma's been dying to get off their chest. So, dear listener... Here's something which is really interesting. So, normally these conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre episodes are almost an hour in length, and we always try to make them as short as possible, but there's always so much to say. What's interesting about this episode is that it's basically just Josh talking about this paper in symbolic interaction by Marty and Jenna, the paper Dangerous Machinery. And the episode is 46 minutes long. Which means anything I add in at this point just makes the episode even longer. It occurs to me the reason why these conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre episodes are so long is because Josh really, really, really likes to get into the weeds when it comes to discussing these articles. And that's great. It's really, really quite exciting to listen to someone taking a look at a paper I know particularly well and showing fresh insights. Some of the stuff that Josh has talked about, about the earlier philosophical papers we've looked at, has led to me reevaluating some of those early claims. So it's great to hear Josh talk about this stuff. At the same time, I don't have anything to say at this particular juncture, but I am putting these little snippets of my thoughts in as I'm editing and listening to the episode, thus making it longer than 46 minutes, it should be pointed out. So maybe, maybe I'll be interjecting with something more substantive in just a few minutes' time, or maybe not. I don't know. Josh will never know. Well, he probably will know if he listens to the ep episode. You will know, but by the time you know, it'll be too late. It'll be set in stone. That's the thing about an audio medium. It's very much temporally fixed. Mm, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, as I move along to the next bit. And again, actually, one, one thing I should have said at the start there, this is something that would not be apparent to you, but M may or may not have noticed that Usually when we do a Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre episode, I'll read through the paper, and because obviously it's entirely new to me, I sort of do the the the, the read-through and, and, and note-taking and what have you. And um, in philosophy papers, there usually sort of be a bit of a quote and then a whole bunch of points of my, my, my thinking on the quote. But when it's a paper I don't quite understand as well, it's pretty much nothing but quotes 
that I figure probably speak for themselves or I don't know enough to actually say anything about. And the notes that I took for this one are almost 100% uh, just wrote quotations um, of what they said. So there's probably better scope for him to be interjecting here. So uh, going forwards, I'll have to remind myself to take a breath in between each section. But the first section is mainstream news and conspiracy theory. So they start this by saying conspiracy theory might be used variously, for example, to conceal, defend, label, or paraphrase. In our data, it is uniformly a meta-move with several analytically distinct yet co-occurring functions. It reflexively reframes an interaction, challenges the legitimacy of claims or claimants, and allows its user to avoid addressing the claims themselves. It shifts discourse from claimants' manifest content to their right to be taken seriously. Again, restating... Basically, that seems to be the, the theme of this article that they're trying to find evidence for. So they look at the use of the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist in four different areas, each of which has its own little um, subsection in here. Um, so those, those areas are politics, sports, American character, and race, nation, and ethnicity. So in the first section... Uh, first subsection, I suppose. Politics, power as conspiracy theory. They give examples of political conspiracy theories, in particular um, theories that the Bush administration had been forewarned of something like 9-11, which, of course, again, this is... They're not specifically going for the 9-11 truth stuff. They're going for any sort of theory where the label conspiracy theory has applied, because, of course, there were... It did sort of come out that there was that briefing that suggested that Al-Qaeda are probably looking to make some sort of attack on American soil. I forget the exact details of it. And so it was it was a slightly bad look that this information does seem to have been there, but either wasn't noticed or wasn't properly taken seriously or acted upon. Um, and yet, so, so we, you know, we know this is the thing that happened, and yet when people would say stuff like that, that the Bush, had been war the Bush administration had been warned about this, it wouldn't sometimes be written off as that's just a conspiracy theory. And so they talk about how political conspiracy theories like this see the term conspiracy theory used to basically ridicule, ridicule them. And often in doing so, they'd make reference to things like Grassy Knolls or Roswell. And a, a theme you saw of it was sort of the conflation of anything that gets the label conspiracy theory instantly gets lumped in with the much less plausible, less reputable ones. So moving on to the next section, uh, sports, bad call or conspiracy, looking at the usage of the term conspiracy theory in sports articles, mostly they say only really, we're only ever really passing references. Um, it would usually be in stories where there'd be accusations of bias in a referee or something like that, and someone would just sort of, there'd just be a sort of an offhand comment to, you know, uh, was there really bias, or is this just a conspiracy theory on the part of sore losers, or something like that? It was, it was, it was obviously disparaging. It was obviously again uh, ridiculing. Um, what was the quote up above? Shifting discourse from claimants' manifest content to their right to be taken seriously, uh, but but in a much more sort of offhand, just just passing mention kind of way. So the next subsection: American character. Everyone loves a conspiracy theory, uh, and this was. As they say, associations between conspiracy theories and pathology 
uh, as we often see, we, we, we've seen that in philosophical articles and in other ones, the idea that that, that conspira- conspiracy theory is, is sort of evidence of some sort of pathology, whether that be actual mental illness or just sort of epistemic vices, as we've seen. But uh, yes, associations between conspiracy theory and pathology are forged in the genre of articles structured around the question, why do Americans love conspiracy theories? And so this was them looking at articles, basically talking talking about conspiracy theories and why people like them and why they stick around and so on and so forth. And once again, they saw a lot a lot of instances of conspiracies, known conspiracies, you know, things that we know actually happened, nevertheless still get folded in with the unproven ones. And so they say uh, it's it's the move to tarnish what was in fact conspiracy shows the label's power. So so, so so things that you know were actual conspiracies that actually happened, your Watergates and what have you, you can still use the the label to take away the the, the power of any such thing simply by uh, associating them with other conspiracy theories that we know are uh, what. That are that are considerably um, less reputable, less plausible, um, to suggest that they're all all kind of the same. They're all, all these conspiracy theories. They're all alike. So anything, anything that shares that label is sort of tarred as being as bad as the worst of them. And then finally, the the, the last subsection here is race, nation, ethnicity. The other is conspiracy theorist where they say, articles on Iraq reveal a conjunction of racism and conspiracy baiting as a means of national identity spoilage. The mechanism functions to tarnish any particular member of a nation or collectively linked with the label. Um, and so this, this is the idea that you say the conspiracy theories are popular within a certain population so as to, again, suggest that the, the, the population as a whole has something wrong with it, is... is um, you, you you apply this technique of sort of shifting shifting the discourse to their right to be taken seriously to a whole people. So they say the phrase conspiracy theory, as opposed to in, in the instance here that, that they talk about the Muslim world and and how the idea that you know the the the, the um, Iraq and and the, the Muslim world in general are um, they they like their conspiracy theories. They're full of them, and by doing so. Um, as they put it, the phrase conspiracy theory symbolically shifts the Muslim world outside the realm of serious people with whom one can reason. So again, they say it's sort of used, can be used to tar an entire an entire people or an entire population in, in some way or another as being sort of outside the, the usual realm of, of, of serious argumentation. So despite Josh not actually leaving me a pause here to interject myself, I'm interjecting into the proceedings. So what we just talked about here is basically labelling practices. And labelling practices don't really get talked about a lot in a kind of explicit sense in the philosophical literature until much later on in the debate. So 2007-2008, when this paper is having impact, it's not having a similar impact on the way that philosophers talk about the distinction between these things called conspiracy theories and the accusations which we use when we call someone a conspiracy theorist or we call someone's view a conspiracy theory. And so what Marcy and Jenna do here is really interesting. 
in that they're looking at different societal contexts and going, look, the phrase gets deployed in a variety of different ways in different contexts. And I want to pull out the sport example here, in part because that's a project I'm working on with Martin Jenner, the way in which talk of conspiracy theories in the sporting world is kind of passed in the media in a way which it isn't with respect to political conspiracies. So people are quite happy to talk about conspiracy theories in sports as being warranted or unwarranted depending on the evidence. And there are lots of examples of people talking about conspiracy theories about what happened to a particular sports team or why there was match fixing going on in a particular league and they'll refer to that as a conspiracy theory but they'll also quite willingly go, and it could be true. Whilst often when we talk about the conspiracy theories in politics, when the label's deployed, it's deployed in such a way that we go, wow, you know, that's probably a irrational belief, isn't it? So it's really interesting the stuff they're doing here. And it's kind of a shame that this paper wasn't more widely cited amongst philosophers at the time. Because it dives into a whole bunch of issues that we should have been cognizant of in the first place. So that was the uh, media sampling. Uh, next, we move on to looking at conspiracy theorists and the academic press. So uh, now, now we actually start looking at, we, we start seeing even more familiar names showing up here. There, there have been references through many of the quotes I've said, but as the names were all in, in fields um, outside of philosophy, uh, I've, I've sort of left them out. But looking at uh, the analysis of, of academic texts, they say full understanding of the mechanics of the phrase, the phrase being conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist, requires unpacking academic definitions of theories and theorists. The literature is sparse but rapidly growing. Again, 2007 we're talking here. We identify three main strands of this literature. Analyses of conspiracy theory as individual psychopathology, epistemological analyses of conspiracy theorizing as a type of unwarranted knowledge claim, and recently more careful cultural studies analysis, sorry, cultural studies analyses of conspiracy theories that redress some of the problems of the other two strands. So if that sounds familiar, you'll see in the middle in the middle there, epistemological analyses, we're right into the philosophy, although, as you could possibly tell from that quote, they're, they're looking at the philosophical articles that are kind of, th those earlier ones that, that poo-poo conspiracies from an epistemological sense, whereas I, I, I don't know about their later works, but I'm guessing they probably would have found favour with some of the... Um, the, the, the later papers that we've looked at that um, are a lot more charitable towards conspiracy theories. So as with the media section, it's, it's divided up into subsections. Uh, the first one is called Pathologizing Conspiracy Discourse, Hofstadter and His Followers. And so um, this is this and this they're looking at more political theory, starting with good old Hofstadter's paranoid style, which is goes all the way back to it and basically predates the philosophical writings on it. It was what was referred to in the earliest um, articles we saw. So in, in this they say that Hofstetter denies making ad hominem, ad hominem attacks. He claims to be labelling a style rather than characterising types of people, yet his descriptions and definitions reveal his target, the personal, moral and intellectual competence of individuals. So um, there they, they, you know, obviously in this sense, conspiracy theory and theorist 
are being used very much in the um, pejorative sense. They say much discourse about conspiracy has become almost inseparable from Hofstadter's creation of the paranoid mind. His quote-unquote conspiracy theorist has become a condensed symbol saturated with constellations of taken-for-granted meanings. So, which, yeah, that's sort of the root of it here, this idea. All these, all the, all the baggage with which the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist gets loaded, the baggage that we in this podcast have generally um, objected to, is very much loaded into Hofstetter's definition. Now, moving onwards to conspiracy theories, unwarranted categories of knowledge. This is when they actually do the survey of um, the philosophical work, which they, they say recent philosophical work on conspiracy theory furthers Hofstetter's agenda establishing the epistemological limitations of conspiracy theory as a general type of knowledge claim. Here referring to uh, Steve Clark's 2002 paper, uh, Brian L. Kelly's 99 and 2003 papers, and Pigment's 1995. So those very earliest papers, which, as you recall, all tended to be... Th th those earliest ones did kind of start with the from the angle of, gosh, conspiracy theories, we know they're a bit wacky, so let's see if we can show why. Although... At the very least, I, I recall Brian's earliest papers did, did, did say, no, we can't, we can't write them off per se, but nevertheless would try to, there was, there was that earlier project of trying to identify these. Well, here are the kinds of conspiracy theories that we can automatically write off. And then even that seems to have been um, losing, losing ground these days. So it looks at these earlier papers, um, and notes, though, that, of course, Lee Basham's earlier papers critiqued those ones, um, and although they didn't use the language at the time, were, were basically the critiques of the generalist style, generalist conception of what conspiracy theories are, although, as we know, it was a while before a particular label came out. And it's, it's basically a, a survey of the early literature in, um, uh, in philosophy on conspiracy theories. They... they sort of mention the papers from Clark, Kelly and Pigden and then talk about how Lee Basham criticises them, talk about um, Steve Clark's uh, reply to uh, to Basham's arguments and others. And uh, nevertheless, so, so at this point, th th they basically conclude that the consensus, the, the, the broad consensus, although they point out that, you know, there, there is there is argument back and forth in philosophy in, in, the, in the, the field of epistemology is that conspiracy theories are inherently suspect, thus fitting in with sort of the, um, the attitudes they've seen elsewhere. But then they get into the third section, cultural studies and conspiracy theorizing in an age of anxiety, um, which, which they clearly uh, find greater favours with. They say, uh, start the section by saying, a third, much stronger scholarship has recently developed around the notion of conspiracy and conspiracy theory. The scholarship lies in the nexus between cultural studies, sociology, and history. Unlike the two literatures reviewed above, this work is careful in its theorization and analysis of conspiracy, treating conspiracy claims as potentially legitimate responses to a postmodern cultural moment, and often noting the pejoration of the phrase conspiracy theorist. And so they go through the idea that in this in this particular area we, we do see explanations of conspiracy theories that aren't pathological. They say things like like these authors see conspiracy theories as reflections of a culture of fear, uncertainty, and anxiety. So the idea is very much that conspiracy theories aren't a mode of defective thinking in some way. They are a, a at least at times valid response to the culture and the world you see around them. Um, so it starts referring to instances of, of papers in this field, which of course I'm not at all familiar with. Maybe Eamon can add a little bit of colour after this, but they talk about uh, Jody Dean, 
who argues that people find it increasingly difficult to discern truth in an age of virtual technology and overwhelming information flows. Thus, aliens, both immigrant and planetary, come to signify our very real fears of invasion, violation, and mutation. They talk about Timothy Malley, who apparently argues that conspiracy theorizing is less a reaction to specific events or issues than a manifestation of what he calls agency panic, or deep anxieties arising from a sense of diminished human agency, or a feeling that individuals cannot affect meaningful social action. And also Mason, whose first name... Ah, there we go. And Fran Mason. Um, Fran Mason points to conspiracy theorizing as a form of political agency in a global society pervaded by technologies and simulacra. So it's th this, this sort of study still pathologizes conspiracy theorizing at times. It's not completely, it's not completely sort of not non-pejorative or non-judgmental entirely. They say... Uh, while we agree with this analysis of the current era, we believe that such accounts may end up reflexively strengthening categories of otherness. Um, instead of questioning the coherence of conspiracy theorizing as a category or pointing to the reframing power of the phrase, these analyses come dangerously close to reifying it. And together, alien abductees, the X-Files and concerns about corporate or political corruption erases distinctions between the varying concerns of conspiracy, treating them all as part of the quote-unquote freak show of American culture in the post-modern moment. Um, and they go on, scholarly analysis must engage the micropolitics of the term. While this work on conspiracy has shown us the importance of cultural context for understanding many different kinds of phenomena, it must also attend more systematically to the micropolitics of the term, its ability to reflexively tarnish identities of widely disparate claimants, and to place limits on what can be uttered in the public sphere. So again, referring back to what we've seen um, elsewhere, the, the way that cons the, the label conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist can be applied to sort of tarnish whole categories of claim or argumentation or or person basically so that ends the um the the the, the sort of the survey of of media and academic literature that talks about conspiracy theory they do have a, another section after this called disclaimers and this is where they they talk about usages usages of the term conspiracy theory as a sort of you know, as as a disclaimer as a preemptive move to try and head off this reframing the the the, the classic I'm not a conspiracy theorist but um, so because people know the power of the term conspiracy theorist to reframe a discussion so people will try to preempt that by saying you know this isn't a conspiracy theory even though in some cases it obviously is I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And therefore, I'm not going to let you invalidate my argument in this way by by trying to get you know get get ahead of get ahead of the tactic, as they say. The charge conspiracy theory has become serious enough that writers now routinely engage in self-surveillance lest they be labelled a conspiracy theorist, since the conspiracy theorist is often equated with a pathological type, delusional, incompetent, or just stupid. The disclaimer, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, is an increasingly common strategy among those who would question or make claims about abuses of power and provides evidence of the policing of public discourse. So, again, I mean, this is, this is just, I guess, to account for the uses of the terms that they saw in their survey of literature where someone isn't making accusations of conspiracy theory, but they're nevertheless acknowledging its power to reframe discourse in this way when, when they say, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, rather than um, uh, accusing someone else of being one. So finally, we come to the conclusion. 
where they they basically just uh, reiterate um, the points they've made so far. They say, This article traced one such mechanism in news and academic discourse, the phrase conspiracy theory. In our data, the charge conspiracy theory is a reframing device that neutralizes questions about power and motive while turning the force of challenges back onto their speakers, rendering them unfit public interlocutors. Indeed, those who question uses of power increasingly feel compelled to disclaim, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but such a squeezing of what can be said and done constitutes a form of discursive violence, thus do public accounts become less and less critical and quote-unquote political. And so then finally, at the end of the whole thing, they sum up like this. We suggest that a whole host of similar devices can be examined. Recent argument over uncivil discourse and social decay seem more like new mechanisms of social control than indicators of social decay in the populace. Like conspiracy theorists, the label may also serve to set some issues, claims and concerns outside the symbolic boundary of reasonable deliberation and contestation. Variants of the label conspiracy theorists become dangerous. The mechanism allows those who use it to sidestep sound scholarly and journalistic practice, avoiding the examination of evidence often in favour of one of the most important errors in logic and rhetoric, the ad hominem attack. While contest claim and counterclaim are vital to public discourse, we must recognise that democracy is a fragile and delicate thing, quoting Denzin, 2004, and mechanisms that define the limits of the sable must be continually challenged. We call on scholars and journalists then to continue to develop a language for systematically tracking and diminishing such dangerous machinery. We are not conspiracy theorists, but we believe that this machinery weakens public spaces that are central for interaction, contest, and deliberation, the spaces where we define our world. So this basically seems to agree with the sorts of stuff we've been saying here for many, many years, that there, there is a danger in the um, pejorative use of the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist, which is that it allows people to get away with conspiring, essentially. It allows people to do dodgy things and then simply deflect any claim, uh, any, any, any sort of criticism or questioning by saying, oh, that's just conspiracy theory, which, which serves... Uh, if if you allow this pejorative gloss on the term conspiracy theory, it, it, it serves to just simply brush the whole thing aside um, and and place the onus back on the person making the claims to justify their their ability or or competence um, to be making those claims in the first place. So that's why, yes, it is. While it is true, and as as many of the papers we've looked at have argued, there is. In, in common colloquial usage, conspiracy theory often has these the, has all this baggage. It's a loaded term with a whole bunch of implications. And so while we've seen some papers that say, well, you have to take those implications on board if, when you're defining it, then you get others that say, well, no, that by, by loading it up with all this baggage, th th there, are, there, are, there are significant negative consequences to doing that. So um, yes, it may be a thing that happens, but we should, we should be arguing against it. So I... I while I don't know uh, where things go from here, I'm sure Ian can um, fill us in a little bit after this. I, I, I would assume that um, Jenna and Martin are, are, are happier with the direction that um, at least some of the philosophical literature has taken. I mean, they're still talking to Ian, so I assume I assume uh, they must be getting along nicely there. Because, yes, as we've seen, while the earlier papers around the epistemology of conspiracy theories were fairly dismissive, um, even though there was fairly early pushback from the likes of Lee Basham, um, it is people have come more and more to the idea that no, this the, the, this idea that 
you can simply write off conspiracy theories or even that you can write off certain kinds of conspiracy theories isn't really defensible. And the only way you can look at things is to, is to evaluate particular conspiracies on their own individual merits. So, on the assumption that Ian has put in some last words here, or maybe I've done such a good job that there was no need for it at all, who knows? You have done a very good job, Josh. I just want to put in here, because you asked the question, what did Martin Jenner think of the existing literature? I would say that they're very pleased, as you successfully predicted, about where the literature has gone, in part because I'm doing work with Marty and Jenner, so they're working with an epistemologist who is of the particular bent. We're also involved in a reading group that I run, so they're involved in the discussion with other philosophers about the work that is going on both in the social sciences more generally and in philosophy specifically. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch of work going on here, and Marty and Jenner now integral to the philosophical project and in the same respect some of us philosophers are now trying to bring in some of the sociological into our philosophical discussion so it's a fruitful collaboration which also sounds like it should be the name of an academic cocktail at an academic cocktail bar i think we've come to the end of this this slightly um unusual episode we um had a filler episode last week due to unwellness of, of M's person. Now we have a, a weird cobbled together, strangely edited Frankenstein episode due to illness on the part of our internet connection. So hopefully this does not become a regular thing, or we might have to rethink exactly how we start doing these episodes. But um, uh, fingers crossed, things will be back to normal next week and we can do a regular episode with the two of us actually talking to each other, which does help things somewhat. But until then, I'm going to say goodbye and assume that M says something else now. Ah, Estings, you are but a slave. Like everyone else, you were born into the bondage. Born inside a prison you cannot smell, taste, or touch. A prison for your grey cells. Unfortunately, Estings, no one can be told what exactly the Matrix is. You have to experience it for yourself. This is your last chance, Hastings. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill and your story ends, Hastings. You will wake up in the bed and you will believe what it is you want to believe. You take the red pill and you stay in Poirot's Wonderland and I will show you how deep the criminal rabbit hole goes. Remember, Hastings, all I am offering you is the truth. Nothing more than me. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy is Josh Addison and me, Dr. M.R.X. Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, they're coming to get you, Barbara.